Neve Sessions with AMS Neve. Hello and welcome to this Neve Sessions podcast on Headliner Radio. Today we're delighted to have Tony Draper on the show. Tony, how's it going, man? Yeah, really well, thank you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, and you, and you. It's, uh, it's really great to have you on the show today. Um, how's things for you at the moment? Have you, you know, last few months have been pretty strange, especially for, for music yeah. creators. Um, have you been managing to kind of keep as busy and as productive as you were sort of before Corona came along? Yeah, do you know what? It's funny. You're right, it's been such a weird time, but actually I've been incredibly lucky because um, so much of my work is mixing. I have a, a setup at home and I've been mixing from home for, well, I don't know, about 10 years now. So I've been kind of preparing for this for an awful long time. So it hasn't really affected me all that much, but obviously all my tracking sessions disappeared for a little while. Uh, and the studios that I would normally use closed down uh, for three or four months. So that was a bit strange but um to be honest i've been incredibly lucky i've been able to keep working yeah yeah like you say having that home set up kind of sounds like uh you were kind of very well prepared for this obviously no one was to, to know this was going to happen but it's good that you had that um kind of backup to be, to be <laughs> yeah. able to do that it's just lucky just fell really really lucky you know i've never never tended to mix in the same facilities that i tracked in it's always been bring it home and do it here because it's cheaper right just cheaper to do that so, uh, so yeah, I've been preparing for that for about well, about fifteen years now. Have you uh, have you been managing to get some studio time as well? It's been coming back. Um, the The main studio, the two studios that I really bounce between, uh, and one of them, Par Street Studios, uh, which is kind of where I've been based for I don't know about ten years or so. Uh, they reopened in in July. Uh, but they they used to have two main production rooms, two studios, and they decided that it was just going to be too difficult to try and run two studios and sterilise two studios at the same time. So they closed the smaller of them, which meant that there was a little bit of a fight over studio time for the main room. So uh, I uh, I haven't done a huge amount there. I just got back in uh, the last weekend. Last weekend just gone for three days and managed to do some tracking. Uh, but I've been doing some tracking at another studio that I, I do a lot of work at called Analog Baby. Uh, and I've been kind of doing some sessions there as well and bits of mix work, bits of overdubbing there. So it's coming back gradually, although, you know, the last couple of days that might might disappear again. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, crazy uncertainty at the moment isn't there. It's just kind of play every day, um, take every day as it comes, I guess, for for everyone at the moment. But um, yeah, like I say, fantastic, Absolutely. fantastic that you've been managing to kind of stay busy and and you know keep the keep the creative juices flowing so to speak but um yeah just to say just very lucky really yeah how about yourself you've been you've been surviving all right yeah yeah it's been um it's been good um for us actually i mean we we launched the podcast obviously uh, back in april um just as mm-hmm. as lockdown kind of um bedded in and um it's yeah we've had a great response we've had some fantastic guests um and some great feedback so um and the mag's going kind of all pretty much all digital now uh so okay cool yeah so we're, we're, we're adapting and um and we're getting there so yeah 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 i think it's great what you're doing i've been listening to quite a few of it since you uh since you got in touch it's been wicked i've been listening to uh oh cool um who's the mastering engineer you had on a couple of weeks ago uh he was talking about uh air studios being in oh, barry grin in there yeah yeah, that's right. Barry's yeah, great one guy. was brilliant. I, it was, he had some great stories. Yeah, it was wicked to listen to. Yeah, 
Uh, we'll, we'll, um, we'll come on to that because I'm sure you've got some more of yourself, uh, some stories of your own. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I might have one or two. <laughs> so as a, as a kind of writer, producer, mixer, master and engineer, you know, you wear many musical hats. Um, mm. when, did you, when did you first get started in music? Because you've always had a bit of a knack for it, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose so. I come from a very musical family. My my grandfather was uh, a church organist and his mother before him for, I think it was something crazy, like 81 years between the two of them. So I kind of came up with music. My parents are both musical. Uh, and so as soon as I, you know, as soon as I could start reading words, I started reading music and doing piano lessons. Mm. Uh, and so I, you know, I originally thought I wanted to be uh, a piano player. You know, I wanted to be a classical piano player doing recitals and whatever quickly became apparent that I didn't quite have the talent or the, the motivation to practice for <laughs> 3000 hours a day or whatever it is you have to do. So um, I then picked up guitar and thought, well, that's all right. I'll just, I'll be a rock and roll guy. That's cool. I'll be in bands. Yeah. And uh, yeah, again, kind of quickly became apparent that I didn't really have the chops for it. <laughs> And I, I definitely never was a particularly great songwriter. But in my kind of mid-teens, I thought, well, it'd be, it'd be quite nice to be able to record some of these songs that I'm, you know, twatting about with. Yeah. And uh, and so I bought a little mic and an interface, knowing nothing wh- about anything. I really didn't know anything at all. But I bought myself a little condenser mic, a little Audio-Technica. Yeah. And uh, I think it was a Mackie Spike was the first interface I had, which was this like shark fin shaped thing. I guess kind of ripping off the the original DigiDesign yeah. M box, you know, the the very first one. And uh, I started recording my own songs, and they were well, they they never saw the light of day because they were fucking dreadful, absolutely <laughs> awful. But they kind of sounded all right, and uh, I kind of realised that I had a um, a love for tweaking with the sounds. Uh, and so, you know, I started burning through stacks of CDs, recording a, a track onto a CD, going into the other room, listening to it, thinking it was awful, going back, make some changes, print another CD. Yeah. And uh, eventually some friends who were actually decent musicians said, hey, that sounds all right. Do you want to record us? And so I said, well, yeah, all right. I've got a mic. We'll just do everything with that mic and uh, we'll do it in my bedroom. We'll do that. And it kind of snowballed from there. And I realized actually this is something I, I, I could definitely do. I, I loved doing it, loved messing around in Logic. And so then I thought, right, I better get some qualifications. So I went and did a BTEC in music technology. And then I went to Lipper and did a degree in sound technology. Okay, cool. So you kind of, that's when you kind of picked up the technical side. It sounds like you were always interested in the the, the production side and, you know, chopping chopping bits up and looking at samples and that that kind of it was yeah. side of it was always yeah was always part of your interest yeah oh, yeah th- absolutely yeah the the creative side was always there um and even like back to sort of like hip hop ej and stuff and mm. the original kind of fruity loop stuff where you just had a bunch of inbuilt samples you drag them on top of each other and you could call it a song you know yeah. <laughs> it, it all went back to that but uh, but yeah then i thought i'd probably best learn how to actually do this properly and what a decibel actually is and all of that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, yeah, I went and got, went and got a degree from Lipper. Cool. Cool. And, uh, I mean, yeah, really highly regarded institution for, for music technology and, and that kind of stuff. So is that when you kind of settled in Liverpool or when, when did you, um, cause obviously, you know, you said worked at Par Street for, for a long time. Um, mm. when, when did you first go to Liverpool? Was that when you started studying? 
yeah, that was it. So, yeah, age 18, or I guess I was 19, uh, moved up to Liverpool for Lippa, um, not knowing anything about the city apart from that, you know, I wasn't sure that it was a particularly nice place at the time because uh, growing up in a very sheltered, leafy suburb in Cheshire, mm. I had absolutely no idea what it was like, uh, had heard that it was pretty rough, and so I wasn't sure about it, but I knew that Lippa was great and that I had to go there. So off I went and discovered that Liverpool is one of the coolest cities in the world. <laughs> it really is an amazing place. And, uh, you know, so from there, I was like, well, this is phenomenal. This is where I've got to be. Yeah. So I spent three years at university and did some assisting and a bit of kind of work experience placements and just kind of bit off as much as I could possibly chew. Um, and then by the time I was done with my degree, I was doing bits and pieces for, for Chris Taylor at Par Street. And, uh, had originally planned not to stay you know i had originally then as graduation was looming i was starting to sort of pop down to london on the train and start handing out cvs at all the big studios and obviously got completely ignored uh but there was just about enough work that i could kind of crack on and, and do what i needed to do talking about um lipper when you first when you first went to liverpool i've, n- I've never actually been to liverpool myself oh man it's a great city it's a phenomenal city. When I moved there first, um, they had just got the capital of culture thing. Okay. Uh, which like brought a whole bunch of um, it brought a whole bunch of investment to the city. So all of a sudden, like the place exploded with new places to go, new restaurants, new bars, and it suddenly became became like a real hub of culture. Yeah. And obviously, it's always been a music city anyway, right? It's like they always say whatever it is, the Nashville of the UK or whatever. And it, it really feels like that. You know, when I when I first moved there, there was music streaming out of every place you walked past. And it, it really felt like a kind of hub for, for like music a community, and musicians. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And it still feels like that now. It's it's a really, really cool place. If you haven't been, go go and treat yourself to a night out in Liverpool because it's, it's wicked. Well, I suppose you can't now, but <laughs> well, yeah, when you're allowed, you should yeah. definitely definitely come okay. up. Okay, okay. And so around that time when you were studying, had you already kind of been into a few recording studios and was helping out on, on various projects um, around um, that time as well? Was that more after uni? Yeah, it was kind of during. Yeah. Um, I'd been into a couple of studios beforehand, but like really didn't know what I was doing. You know, like there was a a little mixer and I kind of understood that, you know, signals flowed downwards and I had to set gain and then it went from there to here and I could just about put reverb on stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was doing a little bit of live sound at a venue near where I grew up as well, just on Sundays to help out and, you know, not really getting paid very much to do it. Um, But I really didn't know my ass from my elbow, to be totally honest with you. So... Um, in the f- after the first year, because Lipper is crazy intensive, it's an incredible place, uh, but it's intensive. And so after the first year, you really do know some things. And so then there's a guy I met just by chance called Phil Hartley, mm-hmm. who ran a studio called Highfield Street Studios. Unfortunately, it's gone now, but uh, it had a big old Neve Amec. 2520 into it in it and and that thing as soon as i saw it i was like this is cool i have to spend as much time as possible as i can here and so i i said you know can i can i assist you, you know, yeah. don't don't pay me can i just come in and and help out and he 
wasn't sure about me because he's a bit of a he's like a skinhead punk this dude very scouse like tattoos on his neck and his knuckles and stuff and he saw me coming and was like we're not going to get on at all you know <laughs> but um I went in and made sure that, you know, I was trying to be a step ahead of him all the time to make sure he was set up with what he wanted to do. And yeah, yeah. and he was cool with that. And we became pretty good friends. And, and he let me assist him for a, a couple of years, really. Okay. So I was doing that. Anytime a lecture finished, I'd hightail it down to there and, and go and make brews and set up mics to do the Pro Tools stuff. Is that kind of also when you sort of cut your teeth using Neve consoles for the first time? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. That was quite an education. Um, yeah, yeah. Phil, I mean, obviously, although it was an Amec console, you know, those older ones had a lot of Neve kind of design mm-hmm. elements to them, and so it was the first time I'd really heard a console have a sound. Yeah, you know, because at, at Lipper they were using on the first year. Uh, we had access to these Audient consoles. Okay, great, great consoles. Uh, if you're familiar with them, but they are quite clean, quite transparent. Not a lot of electronics in the signal path, which is you know great for your minimal signal path thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they didn't have much uh, character to them, so you used outboard to flavour things and and to colour things. Um, but yeah, as soon as I went there, I remember you know plugging microphones in and listening to them back direct off the console through the mic amps and thinking that has a sound. It sounds classic. It sounds like a record. What's he doing? What's he doing different? I must. I thought it must just be Phil's magic fingers or yeah. something that he was plugging stuff in, and it just sounded like a record. No, you know, as he started to let me use the the studio for myself on downtime and stuff, I realised it just is the console. Yeah. Just the way it 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 bends and saturates and has its certain frequency characteristics and slew rates and whatever. It started to have its own sound, and that was yeah, that was the first time I'd really thought this uh, this Neve thing. I, I was starting to understand what people were saying about it. Yeah, about the you know analog I mean? warmth that it that it can bring. Um, yeah, that that it had uh, it had color already. Yeah, and that you know you were you were stuck with that color. If you didn't want it, then you were you know <laughs> there wasn't a lot you could do about it. But luckily, in a vast majority of times, you wanted that kind of big, dense sound that it had. And yeah, I remember tracking in there and thinking, that's how it's done. Yeah, yeah, and when does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Just kind of have. It seems like a bit of a light bulb moment that you had while you was working there, where you just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, total light bulb moment. Uh, That and he had a couple of eleven seventy sixes in there, and he just seemed to record, you know, so much stuff through it, and you know he took it off and bypassed it, and I was like, oh, I get it. Mm. I get. I understand where that sound that I've been listening to for twenty years. I understand where that's come from now. So yeah, massive light bulb moment that the console yeah. had a character. Yeah. And uh, when did you when did you actually start writing songs for other people? Because obviously we spoke about you know you kind of tried to write songs um, for you know for yourself, uh, but but then you started writing for other people, didn't you? Was that around the same time as well? Well, it was never. It was never. I have a song. Uh, you know, you should sing it. It's yeah. always been, um, you know, you bring an idea and we'll co-write and we'll okay. we'll let it, we'll kind of let it just go on a journey and travel to where it goes. I I am absolutely crap at having the initial idea. I just can't sit down at a piano and have that initial idea and turn it into a song. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether it's just lack of confidence. You know, I just think, oh, this is shit, and throw it away, or or whether it's 
you know, I'm just creative in a different way. But if somebody brings a kind of a, a, a thought process or a couple of lines of lyric or yeah, um, or concept, a, a couple or... of yeah, exactly, a concept, then I can pick up the ball and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it. I, I guess it was a little bit later than that. It was probably I'd been I'd been recording as an engineer and a mixer for a couple of years before I started to feel comfortable doing that. Okay. And the first client I really did that for was uh, was a group called Alive in Theory. It was a um, husband and wife duo um, who you know they 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 really didn't know anything about the technical side, but she had a fantastic voice and he could play the guitar pretty well. And they used to have these ideas, and we would just come in and just write for mm-hmm. days on end uh in his studio or at par street or you know we went down to real world and did a few writing sessions oh, there nice. yeah and uh and so yeah it kind of went from there but it's it's not something i spend a lot of time doing okay I, i'm mostly on the engineering and particularly the mixing side these yeah. days uh, but that's that's where it started yeah no that's 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 fair enough i mean like you say sometimes you need someone else in the room don't you to sort of bounce creative ideas off and kind of um that helps to, to to get things going, I guess. Sometimes, definitely, yeah, yeah. Depends on absolutely. What, I mean, what you're doing, who you're who you're writing with, what sort of what sort of uh, music you're writing. But yeah, yeah. And there's there's a few people that I've tried to write with that you know it just absolutely wasn't the right uh, link up. You know, we just didn't didn't meet on a on a creative plane. Yeah, and so you know that just didn't work out. But I think. So long as you're open to it, then you can create something really cool, and and you have to be okay with going. Do you know what this isn't it? Yeah, and that's fine. We've lost nothing by trying it, and you know neither of us is is terrible at this. It's just not the right the right kind of meeting of minds, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes if you don't try things, you'll never know, will you? Um, that's it. So we've we've touched on Par Street, uh, obviously a little bit already. Um, mm-hmm. which for those who who don't know, it's. Uh, a rather legendary studio, isn't it? Grammy-winning studio in Liverpool. Yeah, which is unfortunately set to close its doors very soon. Um, it is. Yeah. When did you? I just want to go back to when you started working there and kind of find out some of like your fondest memories from working there. Oh man, where to start? I mean, yeah. When you say it's legendary, the place is. You know, when people go to Abbey Road and they they say that they can they can almost feel the history coming out the yeah, walls. Yeah. Well, Par Street's like that. It's it's got this kind of feel to it, which is totally unique. Uh, and it's you know there are bits of it that are a bit tatty and a bit worn, but it's just magic. There's something in the air in the place. Yeah. Um, I got started there just as I was about to graduate. It was kind of the February of my last uh, my last academic year at Lipper. Okay. And uh, Chris Taylor, the the studio manager. Uh, had just taken it on at the time, but he was also doing some lecturing at Lipper. So he taught me kind of advanced studio techniques and how to use an SSL and, you know, stereo mic techniques and all this sort of stuff. Um, And we just seemed to get on quite well, quite a similar outlook on things. And so he said, you know, I need somebody to pick up all the crap sessions that nobody else wants, really. You know, the karaoke sessions, the, the kind of, you know, I've got a backing track, can I sing Adele over it? and record it well that sort of session mm-hmm. i need somebody to do those nostling you you know 20 quid 30 quid here and there um so that's when i got started which was the kind of spring of 2010 when he took it on for the first time um and yeah as a, as a facility 
I'm not sure we'll see the like of it again outside of either private investment or yeah. uh, or outside of London because you know it had a huge um properly designed acoustically designed uh control room and live room it's you know 650 square foot live room with oh, three yeah. or four booths and stone rooms you know it really is a proper playground and then you know mic collection the the studio actually originally came from uh, uh it came out of the ashes of a studio called amazon studios mm. Uh, I say the ashes, it, nothing happened to it. They decided that they needed to be more central. They were up in a place called Bootle, which is kind of north north end of Liverpool. Okay. Um, and so they bought this place in the late 80s and moved everything down there. Uh, they were a very successful studio and, and kept going as as, uh, as that for until the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the mic collection was also kind of, you know, a whole bunch of vintage Neumanns, M269s and old 87s and yeah. and traditional kind of classic km84s and and everything that you would just think i don't need anything else i could do anything i want yeah, here yeah and a grand piano and and a great backline chris put so much great backline into the place yeah. uh and so you know i really had no reason to to go anywhere else over the last 10 years it's an astonishing place yeah yeah fantastic amazing that you got the chance to work there really and for so long and like you say with all that at your disposal, you know, you don't need emulations of gear when you've got all the, all of it there and there in front of you. And um, I guess that really, did it really give you a chance to just experiment with, um, with the gear and with, with your, you know, with your sound? Yes, a hundred percent. Chris was, still is a really great guy. Uh, he, I owe him a lot because he gave me that first opportunity and kept feeding me sessions, which helped me progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also very kind about things like if the studio was empty and I, you know, I was like, I've just watched Eric Valentine do this thing. Can I come in and throw up some coals and see if I can make it sound like he does? And he'd be <laughs> like, yeah, fill your boots. Don't worry about it. Come on in, you know, spend a few hours, just tidy up after yourself. So it was an incredible place to work. Still is an incredible place to work. Um, it's extremely sad that that it's closing because, um, as I say, we're not going to see the like of it again. But you know, it should be very clear that it's not because the studio was failing. The studio is going from strength to strength. Yeah. I think Blossoms are in this week, cutting yeah. their third album. Um, they've done their last two with us. All of their recorded output was done there. Uh, you know, anything that the Coral have done recently or any of their yeah. uh, affiliates was all through us. Um, it's because the building quite simply wasn't owned by us we just had the studio's business within the walls as long as there's a hotel and bars and offices and stuff and the owners of the building decided that it was worth more as flats so they sold the building out and we we didn't really have a choice about it unfortunately yeah it's so sad man like you know you see this this stuff happening a lot um but when it's somewhere that's got such a legacy as as par street like it's just so sad to see to see it go that way um and yeah, yeah I think it there's, is. There's, I, I, I don't know. Was was it something that you kind of saw on the horizon for, for quite a while or was it did like COVID happening kind of accelerate that that process? Um, yeah, it was already happening pre-COVID. Yeah, um, yeah. But the building has been, you know, it's been up for sale for, I don't know, six years or something. You know, the right, owners okay. have, have had it available if you wanted to buy it for a long time. But I guess somebody some property developers decided that you know now's the time to to plump for that property uh and and 
I, I don't know whether that was accelerated by COVID, but yeah. you know, it, the, the process started at the end of last year. Right. Um, right. But I think current understanding, this might change, but current understanding is that we're still going to be able to remain open until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chris is already drawing up plans for the next studio. And okay. I have to say it's looking phenomenally good. Um, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not the end. It's, it's a different manoeuvre. It's the end of the year, happening. Certainly. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. yeah what I mean, will be a shame is that I don't think the Neve console is going to be coming with us. Oh, really? Yeah, it was never the ownership of Past Street Studios. Okay. It was owned by the building owner. Right. And, uh, you know, so, so unfortunately that's, What's that's gonna not something that, that's going to... I've no idea. I don't know whether it's going to get brokered out and we'll see it on MJQ or something. But yeah, uh, yeah as far as I know, um, there are no plans for Chris to take it with him, uh, which is a real shame. A shame it's yeah. a proper, it's a proper console. It's a VR legend. Great, great console. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously been a bit of an outcry about the whole situation. Really. Um, I guess, you know, like you say, the historical significance of the place, similarly to Abbey Road, um, is kind of second to none. You know, you've had the likes of Black mm. Sabbath. I'm just reading here now. Um, Black Sabbath, <laughs> Diana yeah. Ross, Moby, Pulp, Charlatans, Coldplay, Take That, Beautiful South. They've all recorded there. Um, yeah, I mean, that, and like that, you say, a lot more recently of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, more recently, we, I mean, we had Justin Bieber in couple of years ago you know i did a tracking day with khalees there um you know there's lots of modern stuff but but certainly all of that kind of elbow and stereophonics Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. early 2000s late 90s era stuff you know echo and the bunny men even you know they still come in from time to time that all of that stuff a lot of those guys met at par street yeah yeah and of course the coldplay legacy you know the first couple of albums two and a half albums were cut there yeah of course of course yeah, so, I yeah, mean, it is. You're it right, is, it's a it shame. Is, it is a real shame. It is a real shame. I just want to, um, while we're kind of still talking about the Neve stuff, um, mm. you know, you you're involved in a number of high level productions on uh, the large format Neve consoles. Have you mm-hmm. have you been using Neve kind of throughout your career um, in one way or another? And have you kind of through that sort of built up a bit of relationship with the company? Um, starting to now, yeah, especially, um, I mean, you know, you don't need me, no, none of your listeners need me to tell them about how legendary Neve are, but, um, certainly there's something a bit special about sitting in front of a Neve console. And so mm-hmm. really that first thing at Highfield street, 12, 13 years ago, using that and realizing that that was the sound that I'd been looking for for so long, um, then yes, absolutely. I mean, Lipper, throughout Lipper, they have a whole bunch of Neve preamps and then they've recently bought a Neve Genesis for there. Okay. Um, and then uh, this new studio that I've been involved with building for the last eight, nearly nine years now, mm. um, called Analog Baby, uh, we opted for a Neve 88RS console. Okay, nice. Uh, for there. So so that's kind of what I'm moving into tracking on more is that yeah. console and... I don't know, we've got 16 1073 Sheps modules. We've got 12 1081 remote mic amps from the console. So it's a very, very Neve-centric studio. So 
definitely i'd say you know it, it, quite quite important to my workflow for sure yeah to, to have at least some elements some important elements hit neve circuitry for sure yeah i was going to ask about that next um you know what kind of feet you, you know you're using the about to you start using the 88 which is a huge desk um, mm. um but what features do you like particularly about um about the neve desks and how do they kind of complement the rest of the rest of your setup and and kind of your overall workflow Good question. I think, uh, you know, to begin with, as we've already talked about, the actual sonic characteristics of the consoles yeah. is a big part. You know, there was a time when I was, my mix workflow at Par Street was I would mix at home, print stems, and then the final mix would be run back through the console right. as 24 stems or something just to try and hit the mix bus in the right way and get that sonic characteristic. So for sure, that's part of a big part of it is just the sonic imprint that it has on the audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the 88R specifically, I mean, the automation system on it is awesome. I've been starting to move back into mixing kind of analog to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I'm in there and using the automation system, the ability to automate the short faders as well as the long and EQ ins and inserts in, that's really, really cool. Um, the, the console Analog Baby actually doesn't have any mic amps in it. Okay. It's 120 line inputs for mix down because predominantly what it's aiming for is to do film score mixing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's 5.1 from the ground up, but all our outboard, uh, all our preamps are, are outboard. Um, and so we're using it as a huge, large format mixing facility. Uh, and so from that respect, you know, what was really important to us was that first of all the noise floor was low. Because if you're running 120 lines, that yeah. soon adds up. Yeah. Um, and that console, I mean, the noise is the noise specs are ridiculously low. I, I, I've never pulled up a fader and gone, you know, what, that's just a little bit noisy. That one, I've, I've perhaps not used that. I'll use something else. You know, we have no problems with that. And it, it, the great thing about the 88 is that it has the same Neve sound that I'm used to from the VR. Mm-hmm. But it's not as cloudy somehow. The VR <laughs> did occasionally have a little bit of a kind of cloudy low mid thing going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. If you if you used it for absolutely everything, so I still used outboard mic amps for some things. Okay. But the eighty eight just doesn't have that. It's it's so pristine. It's it's unreal. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's um, that's something that so analog baby. You said you've been involved with that for quite a while. Is that based in Liverpool as well? It's actually a place called Runcorn, uh, oh, yeah. which is kind right. of, it's just south of Liverpool, just across the river. Okay. Um, and believe it or not, it's it's in an industrial unit, this place. Mm, mm. And you would never know, if you were to see it from the outside, you would never know that it's there. <laughs> it's a total Aladdin's cave, right? And it's, it's just a plain green industrial unit door. The only kind of inkling that you've got that something special is going on behind it is that you need a fingerprint to get in. Okay. Uh, which feels very James Bond. That but does, then once yeah. you're in, it is unbelievable. I mean, I, I've I've never seen a studio spec'd as highly as this. Really? Truly. I mean, outboard collection. I mean, I, I the owner is a chap called Andy Brammel, um, and he's the guy who's put it all together. And anytime he says, Tony, I'm thinking about buying this crazy expensive valve compressor or whatever. I have to say to him, okay, what are you getting rid of? Because it's a one-in-one-out policy because we haven't got the rack space anymore. 
so it's a ridiculous spec of of place. Um, but the, one of the reasons it's taken so long to put together is that it, it Andy had some. He won't mind me telling you. I'm sure he had some health issues, uh, which really knocked him out for years. Okay. Um, and so for a while it was just sat there gathering dust. Mm-hmm. You know, these these probably million million and a half pounds worth of equipment just wow. sat there yeah. nobody using it nobody able to get in but the good news is we, we are kind of back on track and okay. really the, the studio is fully functional um we you know so i've started doing a few little tracking sessions here and there uh from there and, and the, the quality of the stuff that's coming out is astonishing and you said this mostly for film scores you're doing there well it's not what i'm doing there uh, i'm using it as a more of a traditional stereo rock and roll studio okay okay um, but it's it's equipped for film score mixing, so uh, those who are kind of doing high end film scores analog and prefer to work in the analog domain and have, you know, traditionally their only options have been Air or Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can now. There's a studio in the north that can do what those studios can do. We're five point one with ATC monitoring from the ground up, architecturally built that way. Um, and we've got, you know, I think it's something like 120 IO to Pro Tools, yeah. maybe even 192 on playback. Um, so, so we're kind of designed, we're set up for that. So yeah. we can do anything. We can do the rock and roll stuff. We can do pop sessions. We can do writing sessions, and we can do full Hollywood film scores. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's that's great, man. That's great. Who, who have been some of your kind of um, favorite projects you've worked on? And, and favourite clients that you've worked with over the years, Tony? Because there's obviously been quite a quite a range, like we just said, of of different um, of different things you've worked on. Um, yeah, is there anything it's kind of partic- all over the map? I yeah, guess, I mean, cause... is there anything that particularly stands out for you, like um, in terms of kind of uh, you know something that was just exciting and, and memorable um, musically? Yeah, quite a few. Um, one thing that's been really nice recently, which is, um, it was a little bit of a life affirming moment, which is that the very first, I think the very first client I assisted on when I was, whatever, 19 at Highfield Street with Phil, mm. uh, was the Christians. They were cutting a, an album called, I forget, it was called Life from Liverpool or something like that. And so they were the first sort of proper band that I ever got to work with, and I was just an assistant, you know, and, and it was Phil's client. Uh, and then uh, recently, uh, they called me up and asked me to mix for them. So the Christians has been a really fun kind of everything come full circle kind yeah. of moment. That was really nice. But man, there have been so many highlights. I mean, at Par Street alone, like I say, tracking with Khalees was was kind of a fun moment. Yeah. What's, what's great about Par Street is that because it's the biggest studio in the Northwest in terms of, I think, you know, footprint particularly, then anybody who's touring the UK, if, they, if they're going to do a North leg of the tour, then, you know, they'll just come to Par Street. Yeah. Because, there's you know, it's just the place you would go. So having Justin Bieber in, you know, um, he only came and did tracking, vocal tracking for a day, but um, I sat and worked for eight days with his producer, a guy called Josh Goodwin, um, and learned a huge amount just chatting to him and, and seeing how he mixes and how he puts projects together yeah. and how he brings people together. You know, that was a hell of an education. And, uh, you know, I still keep in touch with Josh a lot. He's a great guy. Mm. Um, we did a lot of work for a label called Amaritz, 
as well. Okay. Who they kind of do? They're a funny label actually because they have this like karaoke arm to the label. You're like if you want backing tracks of good quality, you'd go to Amaritz. But they also do all of this library music and they finance lots of classical and jazz recordings. Um, and then they kind of put it on Spotify and find ways of making money by doing that, by kind of spreading it all over 3,000 different playlists or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those were really cool because they were a chance for me to record, you know, 20, 30 people at a time doing yeah. full ensemble recordings and you got 40 mics up in the air. That was a, a different education again. So totally different, you know, not named clients, but really different kind of challenge for me yeah. in that way, work, working with 40 musicians, uh, sorry, 30 or so musicians at a time. Uh, but then there's, you know, um, there's a band that I, I loved when I was a kid called Nislopi. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a, a track that I think it went to number one called the JCB song. Oh, yeah. Years ago. Do you remember that? It's like, I'm Luke, I'm five and my dad's Bruce my Lee. My dad's Bruce one. Lee, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, they little, came in last stick year. man video um, that's it. animation yeah, that's thing the guys. going on, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, they're such lovely guys. But they came in and did a session that I engineered. So that was uh, Luke and Cannon and John Parker. And they had a guy called Luke Flowers play drum on that, who's from Cinematic Orchestra. Right. And uh, they came in and did a session, not under the Nislopi lane, but that was a real crystallizing moment for me. Because again, like, you know, I'd, I'd heard that record for years. Yeah. It was a favorite record for six months, back when I had a mini disc player that I had in yeah. Blazer Pocket for school, you know. And so that was a really nice nice session nice. um there was the justice collective which was christmas number one back in i think 2012 okay um which had a bunch of it was it was one of these charity singles you know um it was it, it was a bunch of celebrities kind of doing a line here a line there yeah. um but it was it was to raise money for the hillsborough campaign the, sure. the families okay. of the hillsborough campaign so that they could pay their legal fees and we got christmas number one over the x factor which was great yeah, yeah. um so so yeah, quite a few little highlights here and there. And I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a rock guy. I like sort of classic rock and stuff like that as well uh-huh. as as kind of more modern pop. And there's a band called Inglorious who yeah. have done a couple of rock albums. Uh, I tracked at Par Street. Their second and third albums both charted, and they were done at Par Street. And that was great because that was like 16, 18 days, which you don't get to do those sessions very yeah. often anymore. And that would have been so, on the, so that, that would have been fun. on the Neve desk as well, of course. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was all Neve console stuff, uh, and then we've got a bunch of you know Neve. I think we've got 1073 DPAs and 1073 DPX as yep. well. Yeah. So loads and loads of Neve front end on all of that stuff. Awesome, awesome. What have you got going on at the moment, um, Tony? In terms of projects, collaborations, um, I know I understand there might be some things that you can't tell us about, but. Um, uh, is there anything that we can kind of uh, look forward to? Uh, yeah, there's a few things coming up. Uh, the the last thing I've just kind of I'm in the process of I was I was mixing this morning, starting to mix this morning, uh, is a project. It's, it's a band from Wales, from Cardiff, called Coast Guard. Okay. They're the first real band that I've recorded at Analog Baby. Kind of a little bit of production, little bits of writing, and kind of start to finish doing there. Mm. Um, so that's really, really cool. Just noteworthy from that perspective, because it's all done on the 88. And, okay. And it's, uh, that's a really cool project, very kind of modern pop production stuff. So I'm producing that, uh, and mixing it. 
Um, what else have I got going on? There's a bit of stuff for the Christians. I've just finished a mix for the Christians last nice. week. Okay. Um, there's a chap called Mick Roach as well. Who he's not a you know he's not famous bloke, um, but he's a, a a Liverpool guy. He's actually a recovering cocaine addict. Okay. And you can imagine some of the stories that this guy comes up with, you know. And so he he his kind of whole musical thing is that he's not he'll admit he's not the best guitarist in the world Mm. but the stories that pour out of this guy are astonishing so he'll often come into the studio with a guitar with an idea that needs to be fleshed out uh and that then he and i will kind of sit and decide what's important and we'll bring people in to play on various bits i'll add bits of keyboards and whatever and and they're great they are actually there's a label in germany who are Every time I send them something, within about 24 hours, they've got it up on Spotify with half a million plays. I wow. don't know how they're doing it, but um, but he's worth looking at. So he's not a name, but he, he should be because he's got some incredible stories. Yeah, fantastic. I I can imagine so as well. Um, it's nice that yeah. you're working with like a bit of a range of of different artists at the moment um, for like, you know, different genres and stuff, which is kind of throws up a fresh challenge for you, I guess. Yeah, it does. I've been really lucky in that actually because i think if you were to do if you were just a rock guy i don't know i think i would just lose the will to live a bit <laughs> you know do you know what i mean because i i love rock i love doing a lot of rock and 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 I, and I track a lot of rock stuff but um if you were always chasing that kind of huge crunchy roomy drum sound and then always chasing that big guitar sound and i don't know i think variety is the spice of life has never been more true absolutely than when you've got to spend 16 hours a day in a recording studio with people so yeah definitely from that perspective i'm very very lucky it's rock one day then you know perhaps it might be like straight ahead kind of two minute 59 pop song yeah there's a band in norway whose album comes out uh perhaps that next month yeah that i mixed i just finished mixing a few weeks ago called calandra um, who are on Binos Records in, in Norway. And they are phenomenally good, kind of very ethereal, almost Kate Bushy in places, but then also very kind of Aurora or even, um, uh, I don't know, sort of alt-pop, almost yeah. Bjorky kind of textures okay. in there as well. So I, I'm really lucky. I get to do stuff all over the spectrum. Yeah, that's nice. That's really nice. Apart from hip-hop, I don't tend to work on much hip-hop. Okay. Which is a shame. I'd love to. I did some work with uh, with the Roll Deep crew. You said you worked with Khalees. Was that more of like the R&B stuff? Yeah, very much so, yeah. It was, yeah. That was the kind of more R&B side of things. Uh, but yeah, I, the, Wiley had a bit of a residency at Par Street for a while. And so I worked with some of his, uh, the Roll Deep crew, yeah, when but- they were there. Uh, but what's funny is there's a there's a guy in the States who owned a record label in the 80s called Suave House Records. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have Instagram, but I do. So I keep getting tagged in all of these things, thinking I'm this big dude from Brooklyn. (laughs) And I get all of these, these like wannabe rapper guys from the States messaging me on Instagram. And I have to keep saying, I'm not who you think I am. (laughs) But I don't know, maybe someone will decide to work with me anyway and I'll do some hip hop. Or maybe one day you'll just decide to to work with one of them and go, hey, fuck it, let's uh, let's give it a go. Yeah, I'm not the Tony Draper, but I'm a Tony Draper. (laughs) So let's do this. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Oh, and another thing I'm doing is um, tomorrow I'm in Manchester uh, recording an amazing vocalist called Ben Fenner. 
Um, he's doing a live, we're doing a live recording of one of his tracks called Rose, uh, which is a mix I did for him a few months ago. He's a phenomenal vocalist. Uh, and so we're going to take, I don't know, eight mics or so, eight mic stands. And I swear to God, all I'm going to take is my laptop and a Neve 1073 OPX. Connect it over USB, job done. Uh, great stuff. Tony, it's been so good to chat to you today, mate. And um, Oh, likewise, man. Thanks thanks for calling out. It's been really great to talk to you. You're so welcome. It's, it's been so good to have you on the show and to kind of hear about your musical journey and kind of, the you know, you're obviously very passionate about your craft. Um, oh, yes. And it shows in your work and... Um, and your kind of ethos, which is which is lovely. And uh, thanks again. Thanks so much for taking the time out just to chat to us today. It's been really great. Oh man, it's my pleasure. It really is great to talk to you. Thanks, Tony. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we'll leave it there. But um, brilliant. This was new sessions with Tony Draper. And um, you take care and, and best of luck with everything you've got going on at the moment, mate. And we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Cheers, mate. Likewise. Cheers, Tony. Take care. Headliner Radio. Supporting the creative community.